Welcome to the 13th episode of Frontend Happy Hour. In this episode, we'll be talking about the future of JavaScript. To help discuss this topic, we're joined by a special guest, Jafar Hussein from Netflix. Jafar, can you give a brief introduction to yourself, who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Ryan. Uh, my name is Jafar Hussein. As Ryan said, I'm uh, a, the architect of Falcor, which is an open source uh, data API that uh, Netflix has uh, put out, and uh, I uh, do. I'm also a Netflix representative on the TC39, which is the JavaScript Standards Committee, uh, where we're working to advance uh, an interesting proposal uh, for asynchronous programming, see uh, the observable type. And I, you know, just help out at Netflix with uh, parachute into UI teams, and sort of help them out with architecture stuff. And that's kind of my role over there. You're helping us all the time. <laughs> you didn't see, but there were air quotes around the help. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's also go around the table, give brief introductions to the panelists. Brian, you want to start it off? My name's Brian Holt, and I'm the administrative assistant to Jaffer Hussein. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a pretty fun job. I, I like it. Derek? Uh, Derek Shower, UI engineer at uh, LinkedIn. Jim Young, senior software engineer at Netflix. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a UI engineering manager at Netflix. So before we get started into today's topic... Each uh, episode, if you've listened in the past, we like to choose a keyword, and if that keyword is mentioned, we will all take a drink. So what did we decide today's keyword is? Future. Future. So anytime we say the word future from now on, we will all take a drink. All right. So I know, Joffrey, you had recently gone to a TC39 committee meeting. I thought it'd be interesting for you to share kind of what's what are some nice updates uh, from TC39. Yeah, I think uh, one of the more interesting proposals, at least from my perspective, uh, at last CC29 was promise cancellation. Uh, this has been a lot of, on a lot of people's radar for a long time. Obviously, promises are really pervasive nowadays, and uh, increasingly they're being used in like web standards. We see them in ES6. A lot of APIs have started to use promises, but there's always been a big gap there with promises, which is that once you create a promise, you can't just cancel it because, well, it's a promise and that'd be breaking a promise. Uh, so we're stuck with this sort of uh, this model. Interestingly enough, you, you go back to promises. Promises were actually introduced and they had initially to sort of talk about like network, guaranteed network delivery. And I always thought it was kind of interesting that they ended up getting applied to user interfaces because probably the, if you think about server programming and you make a network request, usually you don't really want to cancel it. It's not something that comes up very often in network programming. You might let it time out if it fails, right? Which In which case, it's just considered an error, a timeout error. But the notion of sort of canceling and switching to something else is just not something you, it's not a, a metaphor that you see on the server a lot. Whereas in user interfaces, users are like super fickle. They change their minds all the time, right? They see a pinwheel or they see like a loading bar and they get bored and they hit back. And so you have to figure out how to express that. And, and some people think the right way to express that is, is like cancellation. And the debate at the last uh, committee meeting and it's been going on outside of the committee as well is like, does that mean promises have like a new third state, like canceled? Or do we actually express cancellation in the way that people, the same way we'd express a timeout on the server, which is to like throw an exception. Both of those have like trade-offs and uh, and that's the, it seems like the committee's actually moving from considering a third state for cancellation, which a lot of people like, which a lot of people thought was really nice and clean, to actually creating a new type of exception, a cancellation exception. It should be called a lie at that point. And, and that's perhaps <laughs> the dirty that's lie. Catch yeah. lies. Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not a cancel, it's a lie. Promise, <laughs> that lie. Yeah. Promise dot lie, that's how you... <laughs> Can you tell us like what is EC39? I think we want to. Oh yeah, sure. Yes, it is a uh, a secretive cabal. Of, no, no, it's not. It's actually a uh, it's a collection of uh, implementers like browser browser makers and uh, also people out in the community. So some some are framework authors, right? People like representatives from Ember and Angular and React are all in the committee. But of course the browser makers and people from the Node. Like it's actually really it's um it's it's really great because you have also you have people who've been working in the industry for like twenty years doing security. You have people who have been thinking about concurrency for 20 years. We've got like experts and it's so cool to be able to sit across from these guys who like are tremendous experts in their field and they're bringing that expertise to bear now in the web platform, which everybody there, we all just care a hell of a lot about the web platform right? and, and open standards and that type of thing. And so that's a really cool environment to be around. You can talk to some people afterwards and pick their brains about some stuff. So that's, that's the TC39. 
how many people are usually meet? 39? Or? Um, <laughs> actually, it's about right now, yeah. Um, when I started coming, maybe it was about a year or two years ago, there was probably 20 people that showed up. And, and at the time, people were bitching about, oh, maybe that's just a bit too much. And now we're probably about 40. And, and I, don't, I don't think that's bad. I think that's a reflection of the fact that we're, we're just doing more. Like the web platform's accelerating and expanding. And more people are investing in it and therefore have a vested interest in it. So I don't know that that is uh, a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. It's just a hell of a time booking meeting rooms. That's all it is. How often do you meet? Uh, we meet uh, every two months. Uh, and actually, the next meeting's at Netflix. So nice. uh, I know a couple people who are at Netflix who are excited to attend one. I think their I excitement am. will be... Uh, um, not warranted. <laughs> I think a lot of committee work, like, so, uh, don't misunderstand me, a lot of committee work is super interesting and I think it's really interesting to see how the web is done, right? But to some people, they don't like spending 12 hours talking about the binding precedence of the exponentiation operator and like, That's that like, is a thing awesome. that happened. Very passionate. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> I just want to heckle. I just want to say like, Yehuda sucks or something like that. Just kidding. I like Yehuda Cass. <laughs> Bring up uh, tail calls and Talk oh, about them. Yes, just like lob that grenade in there. <laughs> hey, what about proper tail calls? Yeah, that was actually, I mean, that was literally 12 hours at the last meeting. Uh, the one before this in Munich was 12 hours of talking about proper tail calls. And uh, it's funny because, you know, it's like the thing that sucks about being on the committee is that you lose the ability to heckle. Because I used to be like, ah, oh, those committee members, they just know what the hell they're doing. Like, clearly <laughs> you're just going to do that, right? And when you're on the committee, you realize there's like, there's not just two sides to that issue. There's like six sides to that issue. And that's actually the thing that I think I feel the most profound sense of loss about the ability of just being able to bitch in ignorance. Right. Well, you can't really bitch because you're just bitching at yourself. Yeah, exactly. I'm like committee members. <laughs> I'd be interested too to even walk through features actually presented to the committee and, and kind of going through like there's obviously various steps, but yeah, how does like something that you've chosen that you really feel passionate about? Maybe it is like canceling promises but how does that go into play yeah i mean actually there's a lot more process around this than there was when i joined two years ago the process has become formalized and sort of like beaten into place and it's i think it's pretty good now it's still being debated there is not a single meeting which where we don't like look up the definition of stage two sorry to rewind a little bit every proposal has to make its way through five stages I think it's five stages and every every stage has like exit criteria and basically you meet that exit criteria it's also a consensus model which is to say that it is technically not you don't need like a hundred percent of people to say yes there is like no formal governance in the sense that like everybody takes a vote um in general if somebody has a very strong objection to a feature um, that will be considered by the committee and, and historically speaking, if somebody, we've had this expression, like if you're willing to throw yourselves on the tracks to stop this feature from happening. And most of the time people, while they might have strong objections, if they find themselves in the minority, the consensus models work generally well. Now that's worked well with 20 people and it continues to work pretty well with 39. At some point, if there's a lot, if we continue to scale, this informal sort of consensus system may not work. But yeah, that's pretty much how it is. Like there have been times where people have just said, you know what? No, I'm just 100% against this feature. I'm not letting it through. And so it's incumbent on us to work behind the scenes very often. And it's not, not back channeling. It's often in open forums, like in GitHub issues and that type of thing. Or, and sometimes, yeah, just calling up somebody and talking with them. If you have somebody who's really opposed to your feature, has strong concerns about it, talk with them about it and try and get them on your side or work together to alter the proposal. Just, just wait till I'm on TC39. Nothing's going to get done. <laughs> it's like, you want that? Fuck you. <laughs> Not happening. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, right, people have said this, like, there are rarely committees that come together and are just like, well, we're done. Let's go home, right? The interesting thing about this committee model is that JavaScript will likely continue to grow. And, and there are people who have objections to that. Like, there's people from, like, the scheme school where they're like, unless the, the language, you know, uh, specification fits in, like, 10 pages, it's too complicated a language. I think, personally, I've come to accept that all the really popular languages, whether it's Java or C Sharp or JavaScript, they're just going to continue to grow because people use them. And, and that's not a bad thing necessarily. I think it can, like, if, if you're in it for the elegance and purity of the language, then go back to scheme. Yeah. Go back to scheme <laughs> five, not, not six, the version they sold out. Yeah, right. Bastards. But yeah. I, I like, I think that's, you know, it's, it's hard in the end. Languages aren't, you know, about aesthetic purity and about getting stuff done. And so a couple episodes ago, we talked about transpilers and kind of felt that 
that those actually can help uh, drive some of the features that actually make it into JavaScript spec. Did you just say future features? <laughs> did I say future? Uh, I said feature, but feature. Future. But now oh, we now said it twice, did. actually. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> but yeah, I'm interested to know like if that does help get features in because now people are actually using them out in the wild, even though they're uh, transpiled. Um, transpo like transpilation has been huge, absolutely huge for the committee, right? It's not just for developers. For us, previously the model was we would release a uh, feature behind a flag, a compatibility flag, yeah. right? And somebody would have to activate it. But understandably, developers weren't very enthusiastic about trying features that they couldn't really release into the wild. And they couldn't, even if they did try them, how much really valid feedback could they give us? And so transpilers really broke that cycle where now we can like propose something and with this through the staging system, we can signal to users as part of the staging system. System is to signal to developers just how much degree of confidence we have that this language feature isn't going to change and will indeed make it into the spec. And that's to really signal to them so they can start using it. And this has become this awesome virtuous cycle where they try the feature, they can let us know if it's working out, we can tweak it, and they understand that they're accepting a higher degree of risk when they turn on that, that flag, right? And the higher the risk, the lower the feature stage, the higher the risk. As somebody who's had my proposal change dramatically, like in the last year, year and a half, those early stages, they're a big risk, folks. But, um, you know, that's, you're absolutely right. It has been great. So that proposal, uh, which feature are you uh, getting there? Right. I'm referring to the observable proposal. Um, and uh, an observable for those of you out there who are familiar with uh, iterables. Um, iterables are introduced in ES6. And the notion behind an iterable is that, you know, you can have any collection interface, like a set or a, uh, an array, implement the iterable. And it's basically something you can walk up to and use the new for of loop to just sort of pull values out consecutively until you finally get a message that you're done. And the interesting way to understand observables is it's like it's turning that that whole thing inside out. So instead of a consumer saying to a producer, give me another value, give me another value, give me another value, and then the producer finally saying no more values, it's actually instead of a consumer pulling values out, it's a producer pushing values at the consumer. So instead of the consumer says, hey, here's a callback, and the producer just keeps pushing values at them until finally there's no more values, and then it says, hey, by the way, I'm done. And so that's that's one way of understanding the observable. It's sort of like do the push version of an iterable. And the reason that's cool, so it's a basic data type, but the reason it's cool is for the same reason iterables are cool, which is that all of the combinators like that you see in underscore, like map and filter and reduce, all those combinators, which you, we know we can do over things like iterables and over arrays, you can also do over observables. And so it's a very cool and powerful thing to be able to build event-driven systems in a compositional way. And that's really kind of what we're trying to do. Now, you can do all that stuff in NPM. I mean, the reality is any feature that's kind of being introduced into JavaScript, the first question should always be, but why does this need to be in JavaScript? Because NPM's a thing, and it's a really awesome, powerful, accessible thing. And if you think you have a great model for something, you can always just publish an NPM. So why put it into the web platform? Well, the reason why we'd want to put this in the web platform is that we have a uh, use for it in the web platform. For the same reason, frankly, we put promises in the web platform. We have, we, the standards developers want to develop APIs that use these types. And, uh, right now, what we have is event target, which for those of you who may or may not know is the add event listener or remove event listener kind of pair, which is definitely easy to understand. I think a lot of web developers are familiar with it, but it is generally understood to be everybody, by everybody to be just a terrible, terrible clunky API. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, since you can't reify an actual object that represents that particular event stream, you can't put methods like map and filter on it. And so it's not very capable. And so that's really the, the API that we're aiming to sort of, if not get rid of, make it easy to take any event target API and have web standards writers actually like make it also available as an observable. And I think gradually we're going to wean people off that into a much better interface, which is the observable. Well, and it's funny too, because like one of the, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the big benefits too with observables is that they are cancelable versus something that we were just talking about with promises is not cancelable at this yeah. moment. Yeah. And so if observables were in the spec, do we actually need to have promises cancelable? Well, I think it's unavoidable that we're going to have promise cancellation because we've just invested so heavily in promises. Um, there's such a, I mean, like the probably the biggest example here is fetch, the fetch API, right? For those of you who don't know, the fetch API is an API, basically like a one-liner you can write to get, to make HTTP uh, requests, like, uh, and it basically replaces XML HTTP requests, uh, which is just another terrible clunky web API that's been with us like forever that I have to look up every single time I use it, right? I'm like, I have no idea how this thing works. Nice. Yeah, I mean, fetch is unquestionably a huge improvement on oh, that, yeah. right? What's but, the support around that? I, I, I looked into that a little bit, a little while ago and I like, 
use it, but I don't really know. Uh, yeah, is it well supported? Is it every, certainly every modern browser supports yeah. it? Yeah, at this point, I'm, I'm. I mean, don't quote me. I'm pretty sure that's true. I'm tweeting it right now. Oh man, ship it. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Or at least the version yet to be released that's like you know in beta will support it. Fetch, I mean, Fetch is a huge win, right? Uh, it's a huge win. So I'm sure it's going to be supported, I think. But if you recall, XML, XML HTTP request had an abort API, right? If you just didn't want, if you wanted to cancel that web request and not get, you know, not get called when that web uh, request arrived, you could just abort it. And we really lost that capability when we, when Fetch started returning promise. And so that's what people are really after replacing. I don't think observables are going to replace promises. I mean, I think promises are going to be around. And actually part of the big thing we're doing right now is looking at ta actually taking the way that observables do quote unquote cancellation. Another way, I think a more accurate way to say it is instead of really canceling an observable, you can just unsubscribe from it. But a producer can see when there's nobody listening, right? And they can just be like, well, this tree's falling in the forest, but there's nobody around to hear it. So I might as well just not cut it down, right? So that's how observables handle cancellation. It's really more that, well, they can just figure out if nobody's watching and then they can decide themselves to cancel. But there's no guarantee necessarily of cancellation. Promise cancellation, there's no guarantee either, frankly. Um, but it's more phrased in the concept of like cancellation as in, as in I'm going to stop some side effects and, you know, that, that type of thing, right? So... Right now, the committee is encouraging me to try and frankly make both of these things cancel the same way. So they want to have a common mechanism of cancellation for observable and promises. And that's uh, at least the mechanism by which that's being proposed right now is this thing called cancellation tokens. And long story short, cancellation tokens are, are like just shared state. They're like a big, think of it as a big object with a Boolean that says whether something's been canceled. And if you're writing an async function, which is this new handy syntax for working with promises, asynchronous functions being added in the new version of the uh, upcoming version of JavaScript, you can just basically every function you call that returns a promise, you can pass this cancellation token in. And whenever they're, you know, they're doing something asynchronous, they can just check the cancellation token, see if it's canceled. And if it's canceled, then throw a cancellation error. And so that's the way in which this is sort of being talked about. It's basically very similar to how .NET does cancellation with tasks, which are like the, the .NET version of promises, basically. That's where we, that's where they drew inspiration. And that approach has some, you know, some pros and cons. But the idea would be that you would hand an observable a cancellation token at the same time as you gave it your callbacks. And then it would make sure to check that cancellation token before delivering any values. As you're talking about observables, which kind of comes to mind, and maybe I'm wrong, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But using observables could also kind of get rid of having to use something like a state machine. I'm assuming that you could almost, a lot of that functionality would cover your basis. Yeah, I mean, there's actually a lot of, state that you can get rid of yeah. with observables. Um, and it's, it's not really not dissimilar from like how map or for each, the for each function on an array gets, gets, gets you, gets rid of the state for your counter in a counting for loop, right? You, everybody's done that counting for loop where you create a variable and initialize the counter to zero and then keep incrementing it. What you're doing with a method like for each is that you're like moving the state inside of that. And that's the same thing with map and filter. All of those things do iteration and there's some state inherent in iteration, but basically you're doing, you're not really getting rid of state, but you're doing the next best thing, which is you're making it somebody else's problem. And that's like my favorite thing to do with yeah. coding, right? Make it somebody else's problem. And then you gradually, as you move more and more your state into these special methods like map and filter and reduce, you find that there's very little state in your code. You move the state into methods that have already presumably been really well unit tested. And in that sense, instead of having like a set of instructions where you're like, think about a drag and drop, for example, right? Well, you have to hook up to a mouse down and then you hook up to, and then when the mouse down happens, you hook up to the mouse move, but then you unhook from the mouse down. Instead of thinking about things really mechanistically like that, you can just sort of declare exactly how that flow all works together. Like I want all the mouse moves between a mouse down and a mouse up. And then, you know, just let the, um, the, the library and the, the, you know, like, not unlike an underscore like library over this observable type, worry about that stuff for you. So in that sense, yeah, you can get rid of a lot of state in your programs. So I want to ask you, what's your opinion about cancellation tokens? Do you think it's a good idea, bad idea? So cancellation tokens are definitely a, I, I think they're annoying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, let's face it, cancellate, like having to add an argument to each one of your uh, methods and then explicitly thread through this thing along every single one of your functions is not particularly elegant, right? But you know what? It, I've learned the importance of something that's easy to explain. It is really easy to explain to developers. 
it, frankly, I think a lot of people would have preferred that promises have built-in cancellation semantics, which then all the various functions like then and promise.all would worry about plumbing through so that you didn't have to explicitly pass this cancellation token, right? Because it's totally possible alternate proposals for can promise cancellation would have been you just call cancel on the promise that you have and then it would just clean up everything. Right. And that's not, un that's not unlike what you can do with observables. I think that would have been my preferred model. I think it's just, it, it's very clear that that no such approach was going to get consensus in the committee because the reality is, I mean, even the word promise, right? It's hard to try and rationalize that, at least what some people's designs are on the promise with that capability of just being able to cancel it. Yeah. I think I prefer promises the way they are. Like, their promises, you you call an API, it does something that gives you back whatever you're looking for, right? Like it's it's immutable, it doesn't change, you don't have to worry about who else is consuming the promise. Right. Like it's just you pass around a promise value and that it is a promise. And if you want to implement cancellation semantics, you can do it in user land, right? Like I feel like you don't need to necessarily have the the cancellation semantics built into the promise. Well, people are using them without cancellation right now. So. And no one's died, maybe. <laughs> as far as I know. <laughs> So switching gears a bit, I have a feature I'd like to see JavaScript get for objects. You know, similar to the else operator in Groovy, just like uh, I use it all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get is like model that data that flow. If any part of that doesn't exist, it returns like some default value. I'd love to see that. How can I make that happen? Well, I am certain that this has been discussed in the committee. I don't remember being within earshot when it was discussed. Um, the my best guess as to why it hasn't happened in JavaScript, and I do not know this for certain. My best guess is that. The like the the zero value for JavaScript is maybe not obvious to everyone in the sense that what would you expect for dollar sign dot uh, for a property lookup for example like what would you expect to return if it wasn't there or dollars or, or or sorry question mark dot question mark dot question mark dot like a nested question mark sorry for those who don't know what I'm talking about right the question mark dot is okay give me this property if it exists but if it doesn't exist go ahead and give me undefined or null, or who knows, right? And I think that's one of the reasons why it's a little harder in JavaScript. I've also heard concerns about usability. And so like the pro I think the problem that people are talking about is I've got this arbitrary JSON message off the web, but I want to pull off this property that's nested like five levels deep, but I don't have to write if not equal null, if not equal null, like five times, right? Yep. And five nested one of those statements. And the question mark dot operator would allow you to do that by basically propagating the notion of undefined, like several layers deep. So if any part of that expression is undefined, the entire expression evaluates the undefined. It's interesting that you use that a lot because I think another concern, other than the question of what it returns, because maybe a lot of people just say undefined, right? Undefined, I mean, that's what I'd the, say. Is that what you'd say, Brian? Any, anybody else would disagree? Say null or, yeah, yeah I hear, oh, yeah, I hear a null. So even in that. Um, Fuck you, it's undefined. <laughs> <laughs> we can't I, even get consensus with these five guys. Imagine I, I'm actually right? on the undefined camp, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Take a position, man. I feel like you need to side with Jem just I don't really care, so I'm just gonna... <laughs> <laughs> He's a swift brother now. He's like, whatever, peace out. Um, Future. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think that's one issue. And another ergonomic issue I've seen, and I don't know, maybe if you run into this while you're using it, is that let's say you do find out something's undefined, right? Sometimes people want to do something depending on what area of the object is undefined. Now, you can totally make the argument that, well, they just use dot for that, right? And I think that's valid. But I, I think there's probably a question of adding, in terms of adding more operators, I think there's probably also an issue of just language complexity. There was recently somebody brought this up around using the bind operator, which some people might not be familiar with. It's a proposal to allow you to use a method that just happens to be in scope as if it's an instance method. So like you've got a method and it normally accepts a value as like it, it's supposed to be used like an instance, an instance method, but you don't want to put it on the prototype and modify the prototype. You just want to be able to pass in whatever the thing is as an argument. But then unfortunately, we get in this case of like writing the first thing we want to do last. Basically, we code inside out, right? And we want to be able to just go dot, 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 and look left to right and code how we want things to happen left to right in order, right? Unless you're Arabic, that's probably like the way in which you want to do it. So the bind operator allows you to just go, at least the proposal was at one point, colon, colon. So you could like go require in the map function and then you go observable colon colon map, right? Or some iterable colon colon map. And uh, and then you, you know, you just be able to use it like an, an instance method. But one of the concerns raised about that was like, how many of these operators are there? I think it'd be confusing for developers, right? I think there's always a concern about the surface area of the language. 
I think it's going to inexorably grow, but I just, how much value does that feature really give us versus what we could use that syntactic space for, for something else? Yeah, I'm not a fan of that. The, col- the colon, colon? Oh, oh, I hate it. it I'm cool with it. I don't know. It doesn't <laughs> seem job It's like, it's yeah. completely arbitrary. The first time I saw it, I honestly didn't understand it. Like, I mean, it's it's easy enough to understand, but seeing it, I was like, this is bizarre. Like, yeah. Just didn't, I think you nailed it by saying it didn't feel JavaScript. Hmm, interesting. I judge all syntax by initial gut feelings. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't get this. Fuck this. <laughs> the arrow function. Now that was cool. Like, yeah. I'm like, yes, I love it. The first time I saw that was in CoffeeScript, which I also said, fuck this to <laughs> Which I think we all decided, CoffeeScript, fuck this. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so Jem kind of had brought up too of like wanting to implement something into JavaScript spec. How can the community affect a TC39 decision? Like, or, or help influence it. Where do we make the sacrifices? <laughs> <laughs> well, the reality is we work on the champion model, which means, well, frankly, first of all, you have to be, you have to find a champion on the committee, right? So we, we're like, we don't take just open source proposals and then because somebody has to be in the room advocating for it. And because we're part of ECMA, there's certain rules about who and can't, who and who can't be in that room. Basically, you have to be part of a member. Uh, you have to be a member of ECMA to actually be in the room or there's some rules about invited guests and I don't want to comment too much on those because I don't want to remember all those rules. But there's a lot of rules uh, involved in being on this particular standards committee. And the reason why we're on ECMA is, you know, historical and kind of weird and funny. But I mean, it's, you know, we have, it's a standards body. We're there that we have to obey those rules. So it's, it's not the, it's not a completely open process, right? We take minutes. But because it's a champion model, you need to find, basically the first step is find somebody on the committee you can champion, champion your proposal. And then bribe them with like scotch. Scotch. Or whiskey. <laughs> or whiskey. Or uh, Fiji water. <laughs> Fiji water. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how do you feel about question mark dot then? I guess that's Jem's question. It doesn't actually have to be that. I mean, <laughs> so, uh, here, here's my problem. One of my problems with JavaScript that I love JavaScript is that the backwards compatibility is like just killing it. Because like we can't just do object.get as a prototype because that could break someone else's mm-hmm. get feature at some point. What about use super strict? Use strictest. Double extra super strict. <laughs> yeah. A built-in get would be just awesome. Like underscore underscore get or something. Underscore underscore get? You mean for like, sorry, underscore underscore get that's not the same as the... It's like underscore dot get for low dash, right? It's yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking of. Underscore dot get? Sorry, I'm not familiar with this one. Is it for... It's for getting uh, it's like, nested... Oh, nested expressions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, but you, you could always introduce a new operator and then, you know, write a, write a transpiler for that, right? That's true. Yeah. That would be the way I would probably guess. That yeah, open an issue on the TC39 GitHub, right? That would probably be a good place to do it too. Yeah, I mean, but you need to start a proposal and, and that proposal, the reality is it's it's a lot of work moving a proposal through those five stages. It's pretty onerous, the requirements, as well it should be, right? Um, so you need to be dedicated. You need to have, find somebody who's willing to dedicate a good amount of time to moving any proposal. I've seen like really trivial proposals take a tremendous amount of work, like stuff that actually I believe that there was some community members who were just like basically trying to get an idea of like the minimum amount of effort to move something through. And I'm sure that's why they proposed certain things like, yeah, generally useful, not super important, like useful enough to make the bar, but it really is just sort of a test to see how onerous it was to get through the process. I think array.includes, which uh, some of you might be familiar with, right? That was like the simplest proposal, like, yeah, obviously we should have that, right? Like there should be no one disagreeing with that. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it wasn't terrible, but I mean, it was, It shouldn't be plural though. Include, not include, includes. (laughs) (laughs) What about the exponential That one was like dubious to me because... I could just do that easily, not using. I mean, I could totally get into why the exponentiation operator was controversial. Like, I just feel like that's the type of minutiae where people think they're interested and the vast majority of it <laughs> is not, right? And it's like, if you come, if you come to a meeting, you're going to tune out. I love where we netted out on it. Where we netted out on it is better than I think most programming languages do. Like, the reason why we had a debate about it was that most programming languages, what they do with the exponenti- exponentiation operator is going to make sense until it doesn't. And then what we did with JavaScript is we made it really explicit. I think the more interesting, larger question, though, is really what belongs in JavaScript and what doesn't, right? I mean, that's really a form of what we're asking here. What really belongs in the world's most, probably most popular and prevalent programming language now, right? And even just as recently, it was the last meeting, we were talking about like, hey, maybe we can bring in these general purpose math operators. Like there was some people doing a lot of stuff with robotics and there's a lot of math operations that come in really, really handy. And I heard somebody was trying to talk about like, 
oh, well, you know, I mean, let's just so like the extreme thing is let's just take whatever's in Ruby or Python and just dump it in, right? And that's nice. pretty extreme, right? <laughs> um, and Mon- some people can we monkey are... patch everything now? <laughs> <laughs> like that just sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, you know, the reality is, could we have more such operations? Yeah, there's probably like more that are useful to put in there. But I, I think cooler heads prevailed. I think David Herman, it was David Herman who was just like, we need to come up with some sort of formal test, right? We need to come up with some way of deciding what belongs and what doesn't belong. I heard one person say, oh, that's math and that's physics. <laughs> like to differentiate the operators, like maybe we stick to the math as if physics is not, you know, universal. Maybe like a physics object. So there's like math.things and there's like physics.euclidean distance or something like that, right? Well, part, but I, here's, there's actually to be very specific, I think one of the tests that they applied, which was really interesting, was well, if it, we can get a fast path into hardware, which is a very practical thing, right? Like if if you can come up with an operator, if you can create a function or an operator for something that allows the uh, compiler to more effectively optimize it because it matches up with, uh, you know, a, an instruction set right. that's available. Exactly, right? So there's an interesting question of like what we should put in the, in the language. It's basically to, to, to make it better mirror the hardware capabilities. And I thought that was a really interesting test for what should make its way into JavaScript. Probably a little more judicious than whatever whatever Ruby has. So uh, we talked about how how long something takes to get into the spec. I feel like observables is one of those ones that has taken forever. It like, has. Why is that? Well, and I think certainly when I started the process, I was I was pretty frustrated. I thought observable was a slam dunk, but I think the committee pushed back on it primarily because they wanted to be able to have a single story for asynchronous programming in observable and basically have a set of primitives that all worked really well together and like what they what what they wanted to understand was how do you do io is observable a good good type for io for example and the answer is no not really actually it's not really good it's not really a good type for asynchronous io if not what is a good type for asynchronous io and how do these things compose can they adapt into each other how do the, how does how does that compose with promises and so what the committee came back and said is like slow down just pump the brakes figure out how like present us with a set of asynchronous types and prove that they all work together and then we'll move those in lockstep through the committee process in general, it's frowned upon in the committee to take proposals and couple them together. But the reality is some proposals are just coupled and you're going to get better outcomes if they are coupled together. Right. And in this case, I, you know, I, I was frustrated by that because I felt like a higher bar is probably applied to observable than nearly all the proposals I've seen. Not all, but nearly all. But I have to agree with that statement really overall that we're going to get the best outcomes if we just have, if we, instead of we think about individual types, we think about the async story. And that's why now we're going through a whole, you know, set of uh, design, um, you know, we're redesigning really around the proposals for cancelable promises to make sure that cancelable promises, the way you think about cancellation for observable and the way you think about cancel, cancellation for promises just kind of meshes together. And so that's really why the process has taken so long. Yeah, because it's been like, how long is, how long? It's been, I've been, it's battled as long as I'm in the committee, a year and a half, two years. Yeah, I, I feel like I even remember speaking with you about it a year and a half or so ago and yeah. feel like I remember you being a little frustrated at that time. <laughs> so yeah, and it's still yet to be there. And I stage more. one, is that where we're at? I think we're at stage one now. Sorry. Wait, I'm, yeah, we must be at stage. I'm pretty sure we're at stage one. Okay. Yes. So I, I when last time actually the committee com- agreed that we met all the requirements to move to stage two, but they were like, "Hey, but you just people just introduced this cancelable promises thing." So they're like, "Well, just hold off on it." I was like, "Okay." I, I mean, the reality is the stages are important, um, but you know, it's it's like transpilers mean that people can start experimenting with stuff, and you just got to be patient. Like, I'm I'm I think that the committee is probably cooler heads are prevailing once again, and it's probably the best thing to do to wait and advance these proposals. We now have an asynchronous iterator proposal, which we're not advancing, but uh, the V8 team is advancing, Google's advancing. Uh, and so we're, I'm trying to keep these things in lockstep with each other, promise cancellation, asynchronous iterator, observable. I can see the point, though, is actually having them together for async. Like, that that makes a lot of sense. Like, I could see something like observables being so big that it could be by itself, but same thing goes is that you almost need to couple it together. Yeah, I think the concern would have been that web standards bodies would have been starting to use, like they'll use the types that are available. So they might use observable where an asynchronous iterator would have been a better choice, for example. But that's what's available, so they choose that. Yeah, and I, I, I think that was their concern. And I think it's a valid concern. So how much interaction does CC39 have with W3C? And like, is there any enforcement if you say, <laughs> observables are stage four, they passed, we want to make it in the browser say like, no. I mean, clearly, like, 
you know, browser vendors are certain, like a lot of people on the browser vendors are, are uh, involved in both. And you have people who like Alex Russell, for example, who uh, is on what WG, uh, I believe Alex is on what WG. Actually, you know what? I could be wrong about that. I know Yehuda is on what WG. Um, I believe Dominic's on what WG. And so you definitely have people who are cross-functional, uh, who are, that have their hands in the, the JavaScript community and also on the website. And they're definitely trying to evolve JavaScript in alongside the needs of what the web platform needs, right? And if you're putting primitive, again, that's w one of the big things that differentiates whether you go into NPM or whether you go into language. It's whether you, the web platform needs you as a primitive. Not the only thing, but one of the big things. That's what got promises into language really kind of last minute. It's that the web platform really felt like they needed promises. And so we got them standardized in JavaScript. Now that you need to upgrade all the APIs, like the file reader API does not, is not promisable. It's not a asynchronous or anything. It's completely callback based. So sorry. No, you yeah, know, like a lot of service worker experimentation and like service workers are purely promises. And then yeah. I'm trying to read a file in the service worker, but it's like straight callback, which is like breaks everything. Yeah, and that was the whole point of promises to get rid of callbacks. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You have, like, monkey patch APIs. that shit. Just monkey patch the shit out of it. <laughs> I did. I had to go to your desk and like we had to like sit down and figure out how to do it yeah. in the promise. Yeah. Just ruby the shit out of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> what are some features that you'd like to see? And I'm going to say the keyword in the future JavaScript spec. You know, that's a funny thing. I'm, as much as I talk about uh, the importance of uh, pragmatism in languages, I'm actually probably more in the purist camp than the average person. I, I would like to think, see things slow down probably. Um, what? I mean, Get out. <laughs> <laughs> we've all talked about, you've all heard about JavaScript fatigue and, and I think that extends not just to frameworks but the languages themselves. <laughs> I mean, I don't want progress to stop, but I mean, I, I think that the interesting thing that you know, if anything, I'm taking out the way, certainly my personal experience in JavaScript and in front end JavaScript in the last five years has been that I'm using less JavaScript features, not more. And so I really, I like some of the primitives that are making their way into the language, but I think we're seeing a lot of complexity in the language in the last version, ES6, that I don't know that it's paid for itself yet. If you look at the language spec, just in terms of sheer size, it's dramatically increased. Proxies partly were to blame for dramatically increasing the, the 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 space of that you know the surface area of the language. I don't know how many people are using proxies. They are so cool. I've never used them. Like, well, and I, mean, I think that's a problem is because of the they're one of those not transpilable yeah, features, fully, right? Yeah. It's not a feature you can use yet, but so. they have a lot of interaction with other features in the language, so yeah. it just adds a whole level of complexity to everything. I think to understand that feature, you have to understand that, that the ideology behind some of the people on the web community, there's this extensible web manifesto. I don't know how many people have heard of this. So I think a good thing to do right now is explain what proxies are since oh, we, sure. we, yeah, we, yeah. we've talked a bunch about it. So. Um, so anybody who's familiar with Ruby on Rails knows that in Ruby, when you call a method on an object, that method doesn't necessarily have to exist on that object. Instead, there's a callback on that object that'll get fired if that method doesn't exist called method missing. And you can basically just like implement that method or implement the definition of that method on the fly um, and you sort of just get told what the, the name of the method was. And that is very similar to what a proxy can do. So you can have an object that you can just do a bunch of stuff to as if those methods exist. When in practice, they don't really exist. It's that they're actually being executed like just in time because somebody's detecting all the calls to that particular fun uh, particular object. So it's sort of like adding that Ruby-like method missing functionality to JavaScript. That is useful for some frameworks like Ruby on Rails is sort of built around that capability. So like you can just sort of call a method and it doesn't really exist, but then you like I might just take the name of that method and assume there's like a database table that has that name and then go and try and grab it. And so it allows you to to sort of it's it's a it's a kind of a weak form of turning data into code. It's kind of an interesting trick. It's not as powerful as macros, but you know it's 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 pretty powerful. I think the reason why I was added to JavaScript, it's not so much because we want JavaScript on Rails or anything like that. It was, I don't know that we do. I, I don't JavaScript personally. JavaScript jail. That's not what I want. Jails. I like it. There's this thing called the Extensible Web Manifesto, and it's actually shaped a lot of thought in the standards com community and in the committee about how we should be thinking about web standards. And the notion is standards bodies should do less. We should just put in primitives and then have people write frameworks and then like let the frameworks win. And then maybe if we have a role there, it's to take what's good about that particular framework and put it into the standard if we feel, again, like another if is if we feel that actually even adds value. Sometimes taking the winning framework and standard 
standardizing some primitive in it can lead to things like better performance because, you know, we've built in built-in support for in the browser. Like imagine, uh, and this isn't being considered necessarily, but imagine browsers had a, like a virtual DOM. Like they could expose, they could have a, you could have a lightweight way of taking virtual DOM and React and turning it into a browser API. That's the type of thing that if for whatever reason, the virtual DOM mechanism was like, totally the winner. Like 10 years from now, nobody can even imagine doing UI programming without a virtual DOM. It's not out of the question that browsers would add special support or a fast path for dealing with virtual DOM. I'm just going to say that's pretty badass. Like, <laughs> let's let's have that being added to the browser. Shout out to uh, Jay Phelps that developed Lazy DOM. Oh, yes. That was actually really cool. That is pretty cool. You should yeah. check it out. So a cool use of proxies, too. Yep. I liked what you said there, too, Joffer, about like almost wanting to slow down. But I feel like ES6 probably got us so far because there was so much added, whereas ES 2016, ES7, whatever you want to call it, there was only three features? Two? Was yeah, it only two? It was yeah, two. Yeah, well, it was only two features. I mean, I think this is a good time to clear, clear something up. The versions don't matter. They really don't. Like, we're, we're just moving to a year-over-year -year model where we just, like, ship whatever's there. It's not even that interesting from now on to talk about, like, ES 2016 or ES 2017. It'll be interesting to talk about individual features because it's really just a process of, like, whatever's at stage five when we get to the, the six-month mark or the, the eight-month mark, right? So the versions are less interesting. It's more of the upcoming features. And there are some really meaty, interesting upcoming features, like uh, async await, for example, which I think a lot of developers are really going to benefit from. I think that's probably the, the meatiest fe feature outside or outside of maybe prox. Uh, Sorry, um, de decorators, decorators which yeah, some people yeah. are familiar I with. I know Jeff loves decorators. <laughs> we like we we had a GitHub issue the other day, um, and I was like chaining all these higher order components together, and it just like looks so messy. I was like, oh, isn't there a way we can fix this? I'm like, decorators. <laughs> 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 yeah, and for those that you don't know out there, decorators are basically a way where you can. So we we all know. Hopefully, most of us know that we, ES6 introduced classes, but the reality is, like, if you look at languages like Java or C Sharp, they have all these cool modifiers for members in classes, right? You can say something's public or you can say something's read only. And it's possible that the committee could have gone that way. We could have introduced a bunch of new keywords for uh, some of them we've actually already reserved uh, with, you know, uh, just like several versions ago, we, we like we reserved the class keyword, thinking we might be doing something with that. Instead, the committee chose to try and do a lot of that stuff instead of blessing special keywords, like for the ES5 methods, like saying something is non-enumerable or non-configurable or read-only, we thought, well, can we just put in some general purpose extensible mechanism? And so decorators are effectively that. You can, they're basically just functions, they're nothing special, but they're functions that you can put before members inside of classes. And that basically gives you an opportunity to like modify the member descriptor before the property descriptor before it actually gets set on the class. And so it turns out that's something borrowed from Ruby and Python where it's worked generally pretty well in dynamic languages. But the decorators are still controversial. They're like, you know, it's they're very hard to move forward because if you look at the two, two, two big frameworks out there like Angular and Ember, which both use decorators, they both seem to, those teams seem to want different things out of decorators. In fact, I think it's fair to say that the Angular team wants something much more akin to annotations in Java, yeah. where they're sort of inert and all they are is metadata that you can read at runtime. Uh, and the Ember team wants something more akin to Ruby and Python decorators, where it's just a function. You can mutate the, the property descriptor and you can do a whole bunch of kooky stuff if you want to. And there are even some people who just want the former model partly because they might be able to put in more browser optimizations. Like the more static and uh, uh, you know predictable things are, the more you can build browser optimizations around them. And if decorators are just a function that can do anything in their complete black box, it makes it really hard for implementers to uh, to optimize. Isn't the problem with decorators scoping, from what I understand, is that because they're run before the class is actually sanctioned? So they're, one of the big problems that had to be solved around decorators was class initialization order. Okay. Like, it, right now it's just something that various transpilers are doing and they're kind of doing in the same way, whether it's TypeScript or Babel. But the reality is, the best way to understand classes going forward in JavaScript is that they're a DSL for building classes. Like they're not just, there was, if you, some of you might remember the initial proposal for classes in JavaScript was like, we called it maximally minimal classes. In other words, very light syntactic sugar for the annoying prototype code you had to write otherwise, Definitely. right? We have basically moved away from that. Like I think very clearly moved away from that. We've decided that classes are a DSL that we can do whatever we want with in order to make classes more ergonomic to use. And that is a, a position that gives us as the committee and language authors more power 
right? Um, and it also meant there's a whole bunch of problems to be solved. I think those were pretty much worked through in the last meeting. And a lot of that was working through so we could define what the semantics of decorators are. But I think the problem was, and still continues to be, that people don't necessarily agree on what decorators should be, or should they even be decorators? Should they be annotations instead? So John, for someone who's working on the future of JavaScript, cheers. 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 <laughs> what are your thoughts on types in JavaScript? Because TypeScript is becoming increasingly popular. There's a lot of like clamor about it. People say it solves a lot of problems mm -hmm. at uh, mm -hmm. the time. So what are your thoughts? Fucking Microsoft. <laughs> you mean LinkedIn? LinkedIn. <laughs> Derek, come on, you gotta stick up for this shit. I don't know. <laughs> so, of course, shout out to TypeScript, shout out to Flow. Like, what the committee has decided is that, so the, this topic's come up in the committee and it is highly controversial. What the committee right now, and I consider this a compromise position, is basically decided to reserve the syntactic space of colon and not necessarily use it, but just reserve it for transpilers. So in other words, if you want to put, you know, like we're not going to use the colon space, but if you guys want to decide to introduce a type system in JavaScript, you go ahead and do it and we're not going to stomp on colon for you. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we've, we've basically said we're going to reserve that space and you guys can sort of party on that space um, and we're not going to muck with it. But as opposed, in terms of picking a type system, the position that's been expressed in the committee before is that type systems are not something you get wrong. If you get them wrong, it's the worst. The language is broken, right? And you don't want to break the one of the world's most important programming languages, in my opinion. And so it's very, very, very hard to get type systems right. And, you know, some people could just say, well, TypeScript's out there. It's working. It's I actually think it's rather nice. I think it's like as far as type systems go, this is a rather elegant type system. I think it's got a lot on Java and C Sharp's type system even. I think if you're going to pick a type system, you can do a hell of a lot worse. But we can see there's debate in this space because there's more than one type system, right? By more by two very large companies that you could say had a lot in common and probably had similar goals, right? And they still felt the need to engineer two different type systems that are different in important ways. And one of the you know more interesting things about Flow is that it, it attempts to do more inference. Interestingly enough, TypeScript is take is like the most recent version of TypeScript has sort of stolen some of those tricks and does uh, like more strong inference. Like it'll figure out if you know a type can or can't be null, for example, based on you checking for nullness. Like oh, it'll actually track that, that through. Um, TypeScript, I believe, I don't know if that specifically, but TypeScript has definitely shipped some of the features that previously only Flow had. Interesting. I know that was a big difference with non-nullable types. I mean, if any, people are interested in my opinion, I think type systems are just one of those things that. Um, make more sense as your project scales in both lines of code and human beings. Like I think um, they they just serve as a nice DSL for communicating more static information and uh, frankly as a form of forced documentation. Uh, I think in that sense they're useful and probably get more useful the larger your size. They they have a certain overhead and that that overhead is going to be worth it the more people and more lines of code you have. And so I I'm, I've kind of given up on trying to like say type systems are bad or you know, dynamic systems are better or, you know, I think it's really just a function of your your complexity of your program. Okay, so I, I have a stage zero proposal for TC39. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to take Haskell and just ship it as JavaScript. <laughs> Would well, you champion that? I'm sure that will go in there real quick. <laughs> There's definitely some folks on the uh, the committee that are big fans of Haskell. Cool. Um, shout Done. Out to, Stage uh, five. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, that's the type of thing that, you know what, actually, for those of you who are out there who really love Haskell and want to write and write JavaScript, PureScript is a really cool transpiler you can use. PureScript is very cool. Or Elm, is, either uh, one. Elm, yeah, Elm, Elm, you know, if you want to, uh, and big shout out to the to Evan and the folks working on Elm. They, I mean, if you want to, if you, that's the nice thing about the web nowadays, and certainly with WebAssembly, we won't need to turn Haskell sure. into JavaScript, right? I mean, that's, it's like the big, that's kind of the big deal that's happening, I think, right now, WebAssembly. I don't know to what degree it's really going to be a big deal, but I think it, it is really valuable. Like, it's a deal. But yeah, it's a deal. The possibilities are there. Whether people actually take advantage of it is another thing. For those of you who don't know, the idea is to basically make a low-level virtual machine-like language for um, the web. Of which JavaScript can just be any one of any many number of languages to target. And I think the big win there, like what, I mean, obviously languages already transpile into JavaScript, but well, they can only get so fast. Like if you're Elm, for example, and you have static types for everything and you transpile into JavaScript, 
the static types are gone, and you know the the, the compiler doesn't know any the machine, the virtual machine or the the um, the jitter doesn't know any better about these optimizations, and so that's really what WebAssembly is attempting to do. It's so that Elm can be faster than JavaScript, and goddamn it, they have every right to be faster than JavaScript. If you're willing to type out all those types, then you deserve a little bit of a compile time. God boost. bless you, Evan. God yes, bless you. God bless you. Evan. I've still never written any Elm before. I know Brian, you've looked at it's it. It's pleasant. Yeah, no, no, no. We should rewrite everything in Netflix and. and <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have a lot of like new people in the audience or people who just they're not seeing engineers or like just getting javascript mm-hmm. how do you stay current like you're definitely at the the peak of like javascript uh, knowledge so how do you stay current about what's happening in the web and uh like what should we learn and brian like- i just sit next to brian on the shuttle and that's how i find out what's going on <laughs> I just read Hacker News. <laughs> so we should all sit next to Brian on the shuttle. Yeah, it's going to get super uncomfortable. Uh, that's cool. I got laughed. Step one, dude. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like that and yeah, Hacker News. I don't have I don't have any big secrets, unfortunately. I mean, like I know a lot about what's going on with the language, obviously, because I'm on the committee, but... I mean, some of the most exciting things going on with JavaScript are really not the language. They're happening as they should be, I think, in NPM, right? Um, so for the, for like myself, who's really kind of involved in the React community and like thinks a lot about FP, there's a lot of people kind of driving at the similar model nowadays with like the virtual DOM cell model. Like even Ember has um, HTML bars, which t- does a similar kind of thing with the virtual DOM. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of where my interest is, but it's just like JavaScript's being used for everything nowadays. And so it's like, it's really more niche specific. Like I'm more focused on the front end. So that's kind of what I'm got plugged into right now. But yeah, I've seen some memes where it's JavaScript everywhere. Like that's, that's so true. Yeah. It's like I mean, a rule now. Yeah. I think the, uh, the Ember reference type is super interesting. Like I, I don't write any Ember cause yeah. I, I can't follow the school of Yehuda. Actually, Yehuda's cool. It's Tom Dale that I have a hard time with. God bless you, Tom Dale. He probably has a, who the fuck is Brian Holt? <laughs> but uh, reference is a super interesting asynchronous type. I'm interested to see that developed. I don't really know much more than about it. I was kind of hoping you'd explain it more because I actually don't know. Do you know more about it? So I am in the very enviable position of having Yehuda to explain Ref to me and yeah. a very variety of other topics. Every now and then Yehuda will just ping me on, on Hangouts and be like, hey, you know, like, let me tell you about reference. We figured out how to do, we figured out, we solved binding. Now that, those aren't his words. They're my, they're my words. But like, if you can come up with a primitive that actually explains Ember's mechanism that you can use to explain Ember's mechanism of binding, Angular's mechanism of binding, and React's mechanism of binding. That's a pretty important discovery. That's a win. That sure. that's like that's definitely interesting. And, and like one of the things I really respect about Yehuda and a lot of the the community, like the Ember community and the Rust community, and a lot of the communities that Yehuda is involved in, is that just their willingness to spend the time and do the research to get it right. And like all the thinking about reference, like Yehuda and I have been talking, and part of the reason he, he thought I'd be interested, of course, is that I. I, in the past, we've looked at observables as a way of facilitating binding. And when I talk about binding, I'm talking about how do we synchronize the model in the view, right? And so that's a problem that every UI framework has, right? How do we do that? And the interesting thing is, for the longest time, we've, we've kind of thought, we've looked to push. In other words, we've looked to notification. Like, object.observe is perhaps the most... Uh, uh, infamous. Yes, the infamous <laughs> and now defunct object.observe proposal in which we thought, well, you know, let's just notification all the things, right? And then, like, we'll just be able to observe every single thing that happens on that model in a very fine-grained way. Yeah, Chrome shipped it. If I remember, well, they, I know, I believe it's behind a compatibility. Yeah, behind a flag. Yeah, 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 they shifted. And I think that was like before React and then React kind of came out and I think got a lot of people to rethink how model view binding happened. And I think what were like the two mechanisms is really push and pull, right? Like if you went pure push, you'd have pretty much what object.observe is. And actually probably even more extreme, right? Because even object, the big problem with object.observe, one of the many problems with object.observe is like, the fine gradedness of those pushes, right? Like, okay, when do I get a notification? Do I get a notification when every single property changes? If I like change the same property five times, do I get five notifications? Well, in object observed, we were like, well, that seems kind of crazy. So let's just give you a notification at the object level, right? Like, so if you change five properties on an object, then we'll schedule to give you a notification that five things change rather than give you five notifications because all those notifications have costs. And if we like, you know, change yeah, the that view. Is 
Well, you mean like if we change the view every single time you got a notification, then you can imagine how that would really go bad. It's a lot of trash. Property. Exactly, right? But okay, well, why is object the magic, you know, right granularity? I mean, some of us have domain models that are huge graphs of like hundreds of objects, right? That maybe now I hundred notifications is too much, right? Maybe I just sort of want one notification that something in the, the, the graph has changed. And then I will go and try and figure out best what changed. And so you can really think about binding as, as some combination of push and pull, right? Everything push would be too much notification. That'd be every property changing. If you look on the other side of the spectrum, you have everything pull, which is, I don't know, I'm going to set a timer and every one millisecond, I'm going to go and check to see pull if everything changed, yeah. right? That would be everything pull. And what's so interesting and, and kind of brilliant about the reference model is that it's a push pull. We figured out that it's actually not one of these extremes. It's kind of both of these. And what's exciting also about the reference is that it kind of, it's, we're taking an idea that we know works from, which is ePoll inside of Unix. And so the idea behind uh, reference is that we'll push to you that something's changed, right? But you might not care right now. So rather than giving you the value that's changed, we'll tell you that there Maybe there's something that's changed. There might be a value available for you. And then you can turn around and pull that value. And then only do you, then you only do the computation of pulling when you actually need it, right? You might be at pushed, you know, 5,000 notifications, but imagine you're doing an animation, for example, and you only need to render every, um, what's it, what's the name? Yeah. And, and you'd use request animation frame, right? But in the meantime, you could be pushed like 15 messages, right? None of which you care about. Yeah. You just drop yeah. on the floor. Right. So all you do is with reference, you can sort of push reference tracks, whether it's dirty or not. A reference contains like a value. And so you can oh, track it. Sounds like it's Angular. Dirty. All over again. <laughs> the, the digest cycle, right? There's a similarity there, right? Which is that you have a, a an object which represents a value and it'll tell you if it's dirty or not. But then when you read it, only that it's lazy, the actual com computation of value, right? And so if you, you can have computed references, which are based on multiple references. But if you never read the value, you know... Doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. When you finally do read the value, it, it computes the value, right? And it goes as far as it can. And like once the value is computed, though, it's cached. So that you ask for it twice before it's computed, you get the same value. And it's a very simple mechanism, but it turns out that it's capable of... You can use the same mechanism basically to express the way Angular 1 does binding, the way Ember does binding, and the way... React does binding, right? Whereas React would just, oh, something changed, like in the Redux model anyway, something changed, all right, I'll just go get everything all yep. over again, right? So it, it's, it's cool. yeah, it's very cool. Just check it out. All right. It's got lots more. And that's straight, that's straight from Yehuda. I'm, I'm, Yehuda actually just, uh, sent me a hangout the other day and he was like, let me tell you about React, uh, React, or sorry, um, Rust, uh, Rust Futures. And it's actually kind of based on some of the same Rust ideas. Line. Russ, <laughs> <laughs> Swiss lovers here. Yeah, there we go. Wow, I wasn't even trying for that one. So yeah, um, uh, it is. That's the, probably one of my favorite things about being in the committee that that Yehuda can explain. Yeah, cool I just read that blog post. Uh, zero cost futures. Zero cost futures. Very Super yeah, cool. You're, you're just killing us, Brian. Cheers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a good blog post on on futures. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> All right, as we wrap up today's episode, uh, let's go around the table and share interesting picks that we have for this episode. Picks and your favorite proposal coming up for JavaScript. <laughs> oh, man, that's going to be a tough one. That's not observables. We Fuck all of you. <laughs> We've already talked about observables don't so care. much. Yep, uh, don't care. I, right. I can go first. Right. Uh, I'm pretty excited about uh, pipe angle bracket for uh, really? JavaScript. Oh, I think man. it's pretty cool. So the idea being that like you have a function that returns something and you immediately want to pipe it into the next function call as a parameter. I think that's pretty hot. I think it's super expressive. It's very declarative. I'm super stoked on it. I hope it just wins everything and we, we don't write anything else. And then, <laughs> I like the idea. I don't like the syntax. And we devolve into Haskell or evolve. Evolve into Haskell. <laughs> I have a pick. It's a video that came out of Modern Web this week. Ooh. You that son of a bitch. <laughs> son of a bitch. So insert soundbite here of Jaffer auto-tuned. Auto yeah. Oh, man. Ooh, I like that. It's, uh, it's magnificent. That's definitely my pick for the week. Well, you didn't really explain what it was. I think well, the soundbite will explain itself. <laughs> <laughs> so Modern Web is another sweet podcast. That might even be my pick. It's from uh, Tracy. Tracy Lee. She's yeah. fantastic. She's awesome. I, I, people that she gets on the podcast, friends. You've, you've been on the podcast. Modern so. Web's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so I'll pick that as my pick. And then 
I really want you to like rip the YouTube video and put on like a soundbite of Joffer being auto-tuned. That's a challenge that I really want to see. I'll do it. If you want the MP3, I'll send it Love to it. you. Great. Okay. Deal. Derek, what do you have for us for this episode? You got to follow up with that. Um, so my two picks, uh, my first one is, uh, speaking of HTML bars and Ember, they came out with a, they rewrote a whole bunch of shit and came out with something called Glimmer 2, which is their newest, latest and greatest. Um, some really cool, there's actually a really cool video from Yehuda, um, it's a deep dive into Glimmer 2. It's a little bit above my head, but, uh, it's, it's definitely worth checking out. Would you say it's the future? Cheers. Recommend that. And then my other pick, a little bit more fun. So I went to, I was just telling Brian earlier, I went to a, uh, a Yelp event at a Rogue brewery out here. And Rogue is like my new favorite beer. They have so many different varieties. They have this one called Cold Brew IPA. Uh, but it's actually like, it, um, it's uh, finished in like a, a, a coffee, like it has a coffee in it. It's really, really good. It actually has coffee infused into it. Sounds good. So like a, a pint of beer is actually like have a cup of coffee or something. So... They're like, it's not like for loco, like it's not illegal, but uh, it's it's really, really good. So Nice. Jim, what do you have? My first pick is Morbitron. Morbitron is just like uh, Ryan Anklum's pick from the first episode we ever did was uh, Frankiac, the Simpsons screen capture. Yep. yep. So this one is for Futurama, and I'm a big Futurama fan, uh, brilliant show. And so Morbitron, you can go on there and type in like whatever phrase you want, and it'll pull up the episode and like a screen cap of like... What was said? It's fantastic. Uh, totally nerdy. Next pick is Full Stack Toronto. I think we made that a pick yet. I don't think no. so. Oh, no. So uh, Ryan, Burgess, and I are speaking there in uh, October. I think it's like October 16th, 17th. I can't remember the exact date. I think we're both speaking on the same day, though. I did check oh, really? the schedule. Yeah. Oh, I'm so jealous. Not at, not at the same time, though. Not at the same oh, yeah. Time. You lived in Toronto, right? I love Toronto. Yeah. yeah I I there. I've never been. Why did, oh, why did it's such a great city. Why didn't we touch on this? Joffer is like a fellow Canadian. I, like, oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Canadian. Yes. I mean, he's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry should have been the keyword. <laughs> No, we were in New York. We figure out you can figure you can tell Canadian when they're speaking because they say JavaScript differently than we. Speak. JavaScript. Yeah. JavaScript. Yeah. I've learned to get rid of that. Oh yeah, I tra- yeah, it got so trained out of me. The merciless mocking by yeah. those asshole Americans. <laughs> yeah. I was saying JavaScript in no it, time. It took me pretty. It didn't take long. I was pretty quick to get sorry. rid of it. Sorry. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> they they also trained me out of my A's too. It took it took a really long Eat time. Boot, Siri. Yeah. Well, Joffre's been here longer than me, like in the U.S., so yeah. I would hope he's, uh, you know, got over some of those. I'm, I'm super American now. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like going to vote for Trump. I'm not. <laughs> no! I'm not doing it. That's his pick. I'm really not. All right. Sorry, Jeff. What else? <laughs> I have another pick. <laughs> that, that's your picks. <laughs> Joffre, what do you have for us? Uh, my favorite proposal that's not observable is actually you stole my proposal. That was the one I want. Yes. The pipeline operator. I think it's the only thing standing between like, so JavaScript is supposed to be a, you know, a, a hybrid programming language in the sense that you can use these different programming paradigms. I think it's the only feature that's keeping it from being as much a functional language as an object oriented language. Hear that, Jim? <laughs> Hear that? Just be the pipe Hear that? Like the pipe the- would just be like Unix. The pipe with the carrot is, uh, I think that's out of ML, right? I, I know it's out of F sharp. Um, and I think um, like in most languages, or at least languages that have the pipe and the carrot will also support it the other way, which I think is just crazy and stupid. But yeah, you know, that, that's I mean, weird. But yeah, they shouldn't do that. I, would, I like the idea. I would just say just the pipe. Just like, so just, just the like pipe. Single, single pipe? Single pipe. I, I could get behind that. The, oh, the, but there might be no, single wait, pipe no, and double that's pipe. Used. That's used, Sing, right? The single pipe is is already uh, is that bitwise or bitwise operator? Yeah, it's a bitwise oh, operator. Right. So yeah. we need yeah. to use. Yeah, I'm afraid. Triple pipe. Yes, the <laughs> triple pipe. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with pipe arrow. That's, that's my an jam. Or bitwise. <laughs> <laughs> and my uh, my pick is, and I was talking to these guys about it before, is this super cool language called Idris, which is uh, a cool new uh, example of dependent types in programming. Um, and so just briefly, you can have a, a value that's a type, like constrained by a type. So like name has to be a string. You can have a type of type, which is a monad, which I'm not going to bother to explain. You can look it up. And you can have a type constrained by a value. And that's like the missing piece. And my friend just got me onto it a couple weeks ago in Seattle. Hey, Ted. And uh, yeah, it's really cool stuff. Check it out. Awesome. Kind of sticking with this topic, I figured I would choose the GitHub repo for the status process and documents for ECMAScript. 
thought that was a good one to stay up to if you want to stay up to date it's a good one to follow and then my second pick is actually a drink that we've had tonight which is the octomore scotch uh which is so delicious yeah octomore uh, 7.1 shout out to aaron hammer who suggested it so good and actually these guys got it for me as a gift and it was it's so delicious he edits all of our podcasts because we are too fucking lazy (laughs) (laughs) i want to thank joffer for joining us on today's episode where can people follow you and get in touch with you twitter i guess would be the best way to to follow me yeah J-H-U-S-A as in Sam, A-I-N as in Nathan. I don't know why I didn't pick something snappier that anybody could spell, but it's first first initial last name. J-H-U-S as in Sam, A-I-N as in Nathan. Perfect. Let's also go around where else can everyone find you, Brian. Um, you can follow my Instagram story. Just kidding. Don't follow me on that. It's it's just dog pictures all the time. Nice. <laughs> what, what is it, sorry? Wait, <coughs> you have, you're, you're doing the Instagram story thing? Yeah, because I don't fucking use Snapchat. Jesus. No, uh, no dirty <laughs> tumblers really, we should be aware of. I'm really into Instagram. Not that I'm going to tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> Job, JavaScript dirty secrets. <laughs> uh, yeah, at Holt BT, T is in Tango. You can find me on the shuttle next to Brian because that's how I find out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He has to, like, walk back to like Mountain View. Um, oh, San Francisco. Jesus, you work in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> Even worse. Uh, I know. At Derek Towers on Twitter. I'm at Jim Young on Twitter. And I'm at Burgess D. Ryan on Twitter. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. Make sure to rate us on iTunes and Google Play and subscribe to the Front End Happy Hour podcast. Last word. <laughs> <laughs>